Good morning. Happy Monday. Hope you had a great weekend. I'd love to know what you like or don't like about the Daily 202 podcast. Help us learn how we can be better by taking our survey at WashingtonPost.com slash 202 survey. Thanks so much. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, July 15th. In today's news, President Trump unites Democrats with his attacks on minority congresswomen. The mass ICE raids failed to materialize this weekend. And the new Mexican president's cost-cutting spree is generating chaos. But first, the big idea. Mick Mulvaney's battles with Alexander Acosta began almost immediately. Just weeks after he was named acting White House chief of staff, Mulvaney summoned the labor secretary for a tense January encounter that became known inside the West Wing as the Woodshed Meeting. Mulvaney told Acosta in blunt terms that the White House believed he was dragging his feet on regulation rollbacks desired by big business and that he was on thin ice as a result. Soon after, Acosta proposed a spate of business-friendly rules on overtime pay and other policies. But it wasn't enough to save Acosta from Mulvaney's ire, and that helps explain why the former federal prosecutor had such tepid support last week when he resigned on Friday over his handling of the Jeffrey Epstein sex crimes case more than a decade ago. The episode illustrates the growing influence wielded by Mulvaney, a former Tea Party lawmaker who has built what one senior administration official calls his own fiefdom, centered on pushing conservative policies. But he's mostly steered clear of the Trump-related pitfalls that tripped up his predecessors by employing what Mulvaney likes to call a let-Trump-be-Trump ethos. Mulvaney spends considerably less time with the president than the two previous chiefs of staff, Reince Priebus and John Kelly. And Trump has sometimes kept Mulvaney out of the loop when making contentious foreign policy decisions. At a recent donor retreat in Chicago, Mulvaney told attendees that he doesn't seek to control the president's tweeting, time, or family. Priebus and Kelly clashed with the president over his Twitter statements and the influence of Ivanka and Jared Kushner. Instead, Mulvaney has focused much of his energy on creating a new White House power center revolving around the long-dormant Domestic Policy Council and encompassing broad swaths of the administration. My colleagues Sung Min Kim, Lisa Rain, Josh Dossie, and Erica Werner interviewed 32 White House aides, current and former administration officials, lawmakers, and legislative staffers about how Mulvaney is using his power. One of the White House officials they talked with described Mulvaney as, quote, building an empire for the right wing. That's someone inside the White House. Mulvaney has helped install more than a dozen ideologically aligned advisors in the White House since his December hiring. Cabinet members are now pressed weekly on what regulations they can strip from the books, and they've been told that their performance will be judged by how many they remove. Policy and spending decisions are now made by the White House and dictated to cabinet agencies, instead of vice versa. While Mulvaney has acknowledged to other advisors that he knows little to nothing about foreign policy, he has nevertheless installed a loyal deputy for national security, Rob Blair, who regularly battles with national security advisor John Bolton and his allies. Mulvaney and Bolton are barely on speaking terms, and Blair has regularly challenged Bolton's subordinates. 
Mulvady huddles instead every day with Joe Grogan, a hardliner who runs the Domestic Policy Council, and Ross Russ Vote, a conservative ally who runs the Office of Management and Budget in Mulvaney's absence. Technically, Mulvaney is the OMB director, but he's, quote, on leave. Now, this troika of Mulvaney, Grogan, and Vote doesn't get everything they want. For example, Mulvaney, Vote, and Grogan have all sought to convince Trump at separate moments to care more about cutting spending and the deficit. But the president, who in the past has called himself the king of debt, has rebuffed their proposed cuts as deficits soar. Trump recently told West Wing aides that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell told him no politician has ever lost office by spending more money. That doesn't sound very conservative. Two people with direct knowledge confirmed that McConnell delivered that message in a June phone call to the president. But it's more than McConnell who is causing headaches for Mulvaney. He faces significant obstacles on Capitol Hill, where he made a lot of enemies on both sides of the aisle during his three terms as a bomb-throwing House conservative who was responsible for multiple government shutdowns. Democrats openly disdain Mulvaney as a saboteur, while many key Republicans, including Senate Appropriations Committee Chairman Dick Shelby, distrust his willingness to compromise, particularly on fiscal policy. GOP aides, the staffers, routinely trash Mulvaney in private. But he's running the show at the White House for now. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we start the week. Number one, Trump tweeted on Sunday morning that four minority liberal congresswomen who have been critical of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi should, quote, go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came. Trump's remarks swiftly united a House Democratic caucus that has been torn apart in recent days by infighting between Pelosi and the four freshman women of color, Ayanna Presley from Massachusetts, Rashida Tlaib from Michigan, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from New York, and Ilhan Omar from Minnesota. Presley was born in Cincinnati, Tlaib was born in Detroit, and Ocasio-Cortez was born in New York, less than 20 miles from where Trump was born. Omar was born in Mogadishu, Somalia, her family fled the country amid civil war when she was a child. She's been a U.S. citizen since she was a teenager. All four women won election to Congress last November. By last night, at least 90 House Democrats, plus independent Justin Amash, denounced Trump's remarks, with more than half of them using the word racist to describe Trump's tweets. Some Democrats went further. Seth Moulton, who's running for president, called it white nationalism. Republican lawmakers, meanwhile, stayed largely silent. Number two, those nationwide immigration raids that Trump promised would begin Sunday failed to materialize on the streets of major U.S. cities, even as his statement cast a cloud of fear that kept many families indoors. Immigration enforcement authorities said their plans to track down migrants with deportation orders will continue, but their operations over the weekend appeared more akin to routine actions rather than the mass roundups the president said would happen. Immigrants and advocates have been bracing for the arrests, which Trump last warned of on Friday, saying he wanted agents, quote, to take people out and take them back to their countries. That sounds familiar. But federal law enforcement officials said they worried that the unusual public disclosure of the plan by the president endangered the safety of officers and threatened their effectiveness. Los Angeles County Sheriff Alex Villanueva went on television to say, quote, unequivocally, that his department will not cooperate with ICE. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms urged undocumented immigrants to stay in their homes all day Sunday. 
Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot on Friday terminated ICE's access to the Chicago Police Department database and increased the city's legal protection fund by a quarter of a million dollars to support legal aid to immigrants. New York City officials said late Saturday that ICE agents were spotted conducting enforcement operations in two neighborhoods, but no arrests were made after residents refused to answer their doors. Houston Police Chief Art Acevedo said Sunday afternoon that all is quiet in his city, but he told us that he expects ICE will conduct routine removal operations during the week. Number three. In the seven and a half months since he took power, the new leftist president of Mexico, Andres Manuel López Obrador, has achieved the kind of cost-cutting revolution that conservatives like Mulvaney here in Washington could only dream of. Thousands of federal jobs have been eliminated, and overseas travel has been slashed. First to go was the presidential plane. Next came the sell-off of government helicopters and bulletproof vans. Then he sold the chauffeur-driven cars and fired the chauffeurs. He got rid of private health insurance so that state employees are on the same plan as the citizens. AMLO, as everyone calls the new president, often says, quote, we can't have a rich government in a poor country. But what started as a popular attack on official privilege has led to judges rebelling over salary cuts, public hospitals canceling surgeries, and forest fires blazing out of control because he fired so many firefighters. AMLO is no Hugo Chavez, the late Venezuelan leader who said capitalism leads us straight to hell. Instead, he backs free trade and he promises a balanced budget. But he's determined to reorient Mexico's government, slashing expenses so he can funnel more money to other areas, especially programs for the poor. Lopez Obrador still enjoys an approval rating above 60 percent, but his budget crusade has revealed a tendency to centralize power, worrying some in the country that lived through decades of authoritarian rule. And the Mexican government, never famous for efficiency, risks becoming even more dysfunctional. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, July 15th. Thanks again for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow.